Ladies and gentlemen, for one of the best sports podcasts in the business, subscribe on YouTube to Shaky Sports Journeys. Hi and welcome to Shaky Sports Journeys. I must have said that now like a hundred times. Maybe I need to, to do a new introduction. It's getting a bit the same, the same. Um, today's guest, uh, who I'm bringing, to, bring, bringing for you today, is uh, an ex-Scotland <clears throat> rugby legend, captain as well. Um, led Scotland famously to a fa- fantastic Grand Slam victory over England. But we're not going to talk about that too much today. The gentleman on screen who we have with us today has talked about it a thousand times <clears throat> over. A welcome to the show, David Soul. How are you, sir? I am very well, thank you, and delighted to be here. So, thank you. And as ever, my co-host, Mr. Flanners, welcome. <clears throat> Thanks, Jackie. Looking forward to this one. Obviously, been uh, very close to a couple of these lads uh, at the Grange for a long time. So now I'm looking forward to, to pick David's brains and and get into the depth of a high-performing father. So it'll be interesting to see how we we get from it. So, Mr. Soul, what we want to do is take you back, all the way back. Tell us a little bit about your family background, your upbringing, your childhood, etc. Where you where you where you where you were born and bred. Well, firstly, please don't call me Mr. Soul because that reminds me a bit of my dad, you know. And that, <laughs> <clears throat> I'm old enough without having that reminder. Um, <clears throat> so I was uh, I was born and brought up in the early part of my life down in um, Buckinghamshire and Hertfordshire. So my dad worked in the city. Uh, my mum comes from Aberdeenshire and they met at Cambridge after the war, got married uh, after the war and um, lived uh, just outside in Hertfordshire. My dad worked in, in London working in property. So <clears throat> I lived down there until I was about eight years old. And uh, yeah, brought, brought up there, brought up by there. But <clears throat> when my grandfather died, my uh, late mother inherited uh, the, the place up in Aberdeenshire. So we moved lock, stock, and barrel as a family up to deepest, darkest Aberdeenshire. And I spent many of my formative years um, on hills in the just we were just inside the Cairngorm National Park. So it was a stunning place to be. Uh, a place called Glenbucket, which is in Strathdon, <clears throat> forty miles west of Aberdeenshire. Um, just a stunning place to grow up and for a, a young boy who likes the outside life and uh, you know likes going out sort of walking and climbing up hills and spending time outside it was kind of the ideal childhood so uh, that was where I grew up I went to school um, primary school locally a place called Blair Moor which is now closed um, sort of halfway between Dufton and Huntley um, and that was yeah it was sort of a I, I suppose not quite Tom Brown's school days, but um, you know, fairly Spartan existence up there. You know, it was uh, <clears throat> not quite cold showers before breakfast every morning, but you know, you, you kind of learned, you grew up pretty quickly there. Uh, and then from there, I went on to uh, Glen Armand in Persia, which was just a beautiful place to uh, to go. A very strong reputation for rugby, cricket. Uh, all sports really and, and you know very strong academically so uh, that was that was where my sort of early early education up until I left school and went to went to university. Were you always interested in sport? Yeah I, I, I love sport I mean I, <clears throat> I enjoy playing it um, 
<clears throat> the very first school, primary school I went to was a place called Beechwood and we used to have um, little red blazers and we used to turn them inside out at break time to go and play football um, and pretended we were Arsenal because it had, you know, the sort of red silk with a white white sleeve. So it looked like an Arsenal uh, top if you turned it inside out. So Arsenal was, I suppose, my very first uh, football team. Um, and I was introduced to, to rugby there, um, I guess, as a sort of six or seven year old, but it was very sort of elementary stuff. But it was very much in my... Uh, families sort of upbringing you know when the five nations was on my, my mom and dad would sort of throw a party and they'd you know have uh, black velvet and you know gather around the telly and I'd watch for a bit and get bored and then go out and sort of play play with my own rugby ball outside <clears throat> and so that was very much part of it and my dad was very sporty he uh, won a couple of blues at Cambridge for hockey um, he didn't play rugby uh, having uh, in, you know, got a back injury as, a, as an 18 year old and then served in the Second World War and had a, a, a few um, encounters with the opposition, which meant that that sort of preempted him from uh, playing any sort of meaningful physical sport after that. But he, he played hockey, got a couple of blues for Cambridge at, at hockey. So, um, yeah, sport was always part of our, our life. And my dad was a keen cricketer as well, um, played for a club in Hampshire called the Trojans. and. Um, he always said that it was it was very much you know when the Second World War broke out, the rugby club and the cricket club sort of and the hockey club just joined up. You know that was what they did. So they sort of joined up on mass into the Hampshire Regiment, and and that's where he he served for six years and from thirty nine to forty five. Fascinating that. And and David, was it a sense of the rugby at Glenamon? Of course, you get an opportunity, don't you? And, and it, it's it's forced upon you. I take it that. <coughs> it sort of get serious for you was it still at school or was it after school um well I always took it fairly seriously you know I'm, I'm quite a competitive yeah. person so um and, and you know in those days rugby was your winter sports hockey was your spring sport and then cricket was your summer sport so you know I loved all three um and it, it was you know great to participate in all three at, at Blairmore the, the prep school that I went to um they they in their history that had one undefeated team and, and I actually played in another in the second undefeated team and it was funny because you know, if you, the, all the team photos were up and there was this one photo in colour uh, and they you know splashed out to have the first 15 in colour because they'd been undefeated and um, so when I <clears throat> was lucky enough to play in a, a team that went undefeated in the season we had our photo taken in colour so that was a really sort of proud moment for me. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, Glenarmon, <clears throat> obviously winter sport was uh, rugby. Um, they, they played a little bit in the, in the spring term and then obviously cricket in the summer, um, which was great. I, I, you know, it was fantastic for me because I loved rugby. It was very much my first sport. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was great to have two, two terms or at least one and a half term of, of, of rugby, um, which, was, which was fantastic. And they, and they took it fairly seriously there. You know, they had some guys, you know, David Leslie went there, um, John Frame, former Scottish international um, in the sort of 60s, uh, was another sort of international from Glenarm. So, you know, you had these people who played international rugby for Scotland at your school and it was it was quite a big thing you know David Leslie used to come back and play in the old boys game from time to time so when you were allowed to to have old boys matches so that was that was a big that was a big thing yeah you mentioned university so straight out of school 
straight into uni. Where did you go to uni? What did you What did you study? <clears throat> well, I um, I took a a year off. I, I had great aspirations to go to Cambridge and and hopefully follow in my father's footsteps <clears throat> and get a blue uh, for rugby there. Um, but the year I applied, I applied to do the rugby players course at the rugby players college. Uh, I, I wanted to do land economy at Magdalen College at Cambridge. And the year I applied. Uh, they actually changed the admissions tutor because they were concerned that the college was getting a reputation of being the sportsman's college. So, you know, it's very strong on cricket, rugby, any, anyone who played sport went to Magdalen to do land economy and it was kind of the rugby player's degree. Um, <clears throat> so the, the year that I, I played, they changed the admissions tutor um, because they wanted to change the reputation and, and kind of up, upgrade the academic aspect of the college which was a bit of a blow because I was banking on my rugby to get me in rather than my intellect. Um, <clears throat> and so I, I didn't get in, um, but I, I took, took the year off and I spent some time at a, a school in, in Canada um, in the summer, at St. Andrew's College Aurora, doing some part-time teaching work there, which was fantastic. And, and I guess one of my claims to fame, um, which, which people don't know about is that I taught uh, Kiefer Sutherland how to play rugby which clearly stood him in very great stead you know because he, he pursued that career you know with, with great um, alacrity afterwards but uh, he was one of the pupils there um, and I, I taught him as a sort of 13 14 year old to to play rugby. Yeah. Did, you, um, did you always know that there was a chance you could go on to play rugby at the top level was that your dream and and was that something that you could see coming through as a teenager um well i, I guess the the sort of first representative honors you had were playing for scottish schoolboys and you know from time to time you get one of the guys from the Glenarland first 15 would get picked and that was you know that was a big thing um and there was a trial process uh, where you you had the sort of scottish wayfarers which was the public schools, so it's Glenarmon, Merkiston, um, Loretto, <coughs> the Academy, Strathall, and these sorts of schools came together to form a team. And if you, you then play one of the districts, you play Edinburgh or the South or North Midlands, whoever it was, and that would be kind of a trial process, then you get into the Scottish schools trials and play play games there. And and I played for the Scottish Wayfarers a couple of times, and you, and you kind of thought that, you know, you, you're, you're getting there. Um, and then in my last year, I, I sort of, progressed to the Scottish schools trial and then got picked for the Scottish schools and, and that was fantastic and, and we had you know a very good side we had Gavin Hastings was a contemporary of mine when we played the French uh, they had Philippe Sellar and Eric Champ who went on to play for France Stuart Barnes played for the Welsh schoolboys um, so there were a lot of guys who went on from that sort of schoolboy setup and, and so that was the first taste of, of international rugby. But, but then, you know, I went to, having failed to get into Cambridge, I went to Exeter University um, and I chose the university purely on the basis that it had a very strong reputation for sport. Um, it had merged with St. Luke's College um, in 1978 and I, I applied in sort of 81 to go. So they, in a, the, the university had inherited the St. Luke's um, fixture list, which was great. So we played the likes of Bristol, Bath, uh, South Wales Police, various other first-class sides at the time. Um, and so that was, a, that was a really sort of big step up. But the, the transition from schoolboy rugby into club rugby was was very significant and you kind of thought wow this is 
this is a bit of a challenge. But then some of the guys from the university side started getting representative honours, either playing for England under-23s or playing for Devon or Devon and Cornwall. And, and you know, you then started getting noticing that. And, and, and I suppose while, while I still harboured really strong ambitions to go as far as I possibly could in rugby, um, <clears throat> and I, I started getting selected for the Anglo-Scots at that point, playing in the district championship, which led to Scotland B caps, you, you kind of start thinking that, that, you know, you might be on a pathway to, to winning a cap, which was, you know, fantastic. It, was, it would be a dream come true because, you know, that for a rugby, young rugby player who's, yeah. I, I guess, trying to pursue that um, as a sort of principal pathway in life, that was what you aspired to. Um, so I guess all of my choices in my early uh, 20s were based around progressing in my rugby career. So my choice of university, uh, the job that I went to after university, I'd, it was based around uh, either going to Bristol or Bath to play rugby for Bristol or Bath. And in those days, you were an amateur. So it was whoever could find you the right sort of job and, and give you the right sort of opportunity to, to earn a bit of money while playing for Bristol and Bath. And Bath were you know, very good. I, um, I got a, a, a nice little job there. Um, uh, and that's what took me to Bath. And you know, that was then another progression up, up the ladder, um, breaking into the first team there. And we had a number of sort of England internationals there. Um, and, and, you know, so it's hard to say when you actually realize that you might be good enough. Um, you just sort of keep working at it, keep training, keep doing the kind of the extras um, in the hope that, you know, you might get recognized and, and perhaps make that transition and then in 1986 um, I had a pretty good trial and they made a, a number of changes from a, a side that had won the wooden spoon uh, the year previously and um, we've got six new caps against the French including the Hastings brothers um, and I was lucky enough to be one of the other guys to, to pick up my first cap at, in that match. Can I, David can I ask a question it's something that will relate later to uh, your children and that is how was your dad, how did he influence you during that period between, you know, 18 to when you got that first cap? What was he like then? And I suppose your mum as well. Well, I, I'm never enormously proud um, of what I was doing and, and yeah, incredibly supportive. Um, you know, they were happy to support me in, the, in whatever choices I made. Um, and, and I suppose, you know, from time to time they would offer advice, but um, my dad was, you know, I guess rugby wasn't his sport, so um, while he could sort of say well played or whatever, he perhaps didn't have the same sort of insights as you know, if, he'd, if that had been his chosen sport. Yeah. But you know, he, you know, they both supported me enormously. They used to come and watch my games, and uh, you know, that was always fantastic to have your family member on the on the touchline, and you know, clearly you wanted to do well in front of them. Um, and, you know, they, they absolutely supported me in all the sort of choices. And as I say, my, my career choices weren't uh, particularly focused on, on work at that point. They were much more focused on sports. So, you know, it was great to have um, my folks support me in that way. So fast forward, that was a stage where you, you weren't quite sure if you were going to make the transition to international level. You've got over that. You've got in. You've got your cap. He went on to play 44 times 
for your country. I believe that's correct. Um, <clears throat> in your country, you scored 12 points and you also had three appearances for the British Lions. Do you remember those 12 points? You know, I can only remember eight. <laughs> um, was there a drop uh, goal in there by any chance? Was there? Was there any drop kicks in there by any chance? No, there, there's certainly no, no danger of that. Bundles um, of the line, surely, over the uh, five-year line. No, no, I remember. I, oh, no, actually, no, I beg your pardon. I do remember it because, uh, yeah, so there was one try against Romania, one try against uh, the All Blacks on our tour in 1990. And actually, the 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 the, the, the last 12 points is, is, again, a sort of slightly quirky um, question for sports quiz nerds because it was the last ever four-point try in international rugby. Uh -huh. um, and I scored it from about that far, <laughs> plopping over the line against Australia um, in 1992 in Brisbane in the final test. And because it was the last international match of the sort of 91-92 uh, season and the scoring system changed at the start of the 93 season. That's before my time because I've only noticed five points for a try. Well, there we go, Flanners. You know, so uh, if anyone asks you, or if you want to win money, you can you can say who scored the last ever four point try in this national rugby. And I like that. I like that. And I suppose <clears throat> Kaz was going to ask a question. Um, and looking back on your career, David, I take it you're very proud of what you achieved uh, in your playing days. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, we we all did it for fun. It was all recreational <clears throat> and it was our, our opportunity to release. So, and I, I feel incredibly privileged to have, you know, been around a, a, an amazing bunch of guys um, in the in the time that I played. You know, people like Finlay Calder, the Hastings brothers, Sean Maneen, Gary Armstrong. You know, all of these guys are you know, great characters, great men, great human beings. Uh, and great friends and, and you know it's absolutely fantastic to have spent time to have been on tour to you know have had yeah incredible highs but also incredible lows because I think it's all about the balance and I think when you when you take that into a Lions tour as well uh, that's just another dimension <clears throat> and um, you know the, 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 the kind of Lions tour friendships are, are fantastic and even you know playing against your opponents. I mean, the, the worst game in the world, uh, I, I think probably in any sport that has a World Cup, is the third, fourth playoff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, no one wants to be there. <clears throat> we obviously um, got to the third, fourth playoff in 1991 in the World Cup and, and had to play the All Blacks down in Cardiff. And, and playing the All Blacks at any time is, is a challenge. But, you know, playing in the third, fourth playoff when no one wants to be there is just horrible. Um, but, you know, we, we, we played and we, we lost, we got beaten, I think it was 13-9 or something like that. Um, but we didn't play particularly well. Um, but, but I think probably because we were both there <clears throat> nursing our sort of the loss in the semi-final a bit, we had the most incredible party that, that night after the game. And we sort of sat down with the All Blacks uh, in the hotel in Cardiff and just started playing drinking games and chatting and singing and they'd bring a guitar out, sing a song, we'd sing a song. It was just an incredible night. And I was <clears throat> commentating on the um, 2007 Rugby World Cup and, and uh, was in Paris doing a piece of, piece of work for the kind of the world feed. And I bumped into Grant Fox and Alan Wetton, who'd been in that all black side and because and, they were doing commentary for TV New Zealand or whoever it was. Mm -hmm. 
And we, we were sort of walking out and said, do you fancy a beer? So, so we went into the, the bar and started the France or Pied Press, wherever it was. And started chatting and said, do you remember that? Do you remember that third, fourth playoff? I said, oh yeah, I hated it, I hated it. I said, but mate, mate, what a party we had. And, and you know, it was the same for them. You know, it was just an incredible party. And um, there was another occasion I, I was invited to play for the French Barbarians um, against the All Blacks in, in Agen. And, you know, the evening ended with me on a table singing Flower of Scotland, Pierre Bebizier, who's the captain, uh, on the table singing the Marseillaise and, and Sean Fitzpatrick on, on the, another table doing a haka. <clears throat> and, and kind of this was, you know, four o'clock in the morning. David, this is really interesting because I was going to come to a question regarding one of your boys and that's Chris. Now, Chris has been known to, um, you know, straight arm Scottish Cup drinks, uh, you know, and he's a definite character in, in, on, on a night out with the lads. I was wondering, where does that come from? Now I know it is his dad. <laughs> I, I couldn't possibly comment, Flanners, but but we all we all have the same uh, middle name. Um, so my my full name's David Michael Barclay Soul, and, and Chris is Chris Barclay Soul. Tom's Tom Barclay Soul. Yeah. Uh, and and Barclay is known to be our alter egos, <laughs> uh, who tends to come out to play after one or two drinks. You know, so. Um, you know, if, if Barclay's been out, you know it's been a good night. He's, he's definitely been out there, so that's what it was. One and and um, Kaz, you're probably going to ask, but David, how do you see rugby now, and and how it was in your day from a I suppose a, a playing day and a social aspect? What was it like now? Do you reckon compared to what it was then? Yeah, I, I mean the game is is chalk and cheese to the game that we played. Um, you know, it, it is so much more physical. Um, you know, the guys are. You know, incredible athletes. They are, you know, incredible physical specimens. Faster, stronger, more powerful, more skillful. Um, I mean, I think we had some incredibly skillful players as well. But uh, you know, they, they've got the time to work on all of these things. And um, you know, it is a, it is a very different game. You know, the laws have changed massively since since I played. And um, it's funny when you when you look back, if you're if you're if you become attuned to the modern game. Um, and then you go back to a game from the 80s or early 90s. It is a very different game to watch. Uh, there are a lot, there are a lot more mistakes, but there's a lot more continuity. Uh, there's a lot more end-to-end rugby. Uh, for me, the game today is a little bit more static, a little bit more dull at times, a little bit more defence orientated um, compared to what it was like in the in the in kind of 80s and 90s but you know make no mistake there, there were some pretty dull matches <laughs> that I played in which I'd, I'd rather not remember um but the majority of them were, good, were pretty pretty good fun yeah it's hard, it's hard to answer the social sorry guys it's hard to answer the social question because I've never been out with these guys but I know we had a bloody good time <laughs> I'd imagine I'd imagine from getting to know a couple of them um in recent times I wouldn't imagine it's much different um, by the by the by the sounds of things, I think it comes with the rugby. You know, the rugby like to play hard and enjoy enjoy a party as well. Mm. Retirement is a big question. I, I want to to ask of you. Know you you're so used to to playing all those years. You know, it's that you mentioned you're very competitive. What was it like to finally hang up the boots? And you know, how did you deal with it? Um, well, I I've made a sort of personal promise to myself that I would carry on playing so long as I was still enjoying it 
and um, because as I said, it, it was what we did for fun. It was you know, it was a recreational thing uh, for for us, and and it was more as much about the kind of crack afterwards as as the, the you know the game itself, and, and so that's what I did. And and in the kind of 91, 92 season, it just was a a, a really long season uh, because we started. Um, I mean, for us. You know, July, June, July, doing pre-season because we had a, an international match um, against Romania as a warm-up for the World Cup. Uh, we had a game against the Barbarians, I think, as well in August, which is really early in, in, in rugby terms to be playing internationals. Then we went straight into a World Cup, and okay, we did, you know we did well. We got to the semi-finals, um, and that sort of took us through to I don't know November time, um, and then. I, I was you know, tired by, by that stage because we'd come off a you know, tough season in 91, not much of a summer break. Um, and then we obviously had the Five Nations as it was then to prepare for, for 92. And, and I, I kind of, I remember going off on a skiing holiday rather than playing in the trial for a week because I just needed a break. And I, I went out with uh, my wife and, and Sean Lenine and his wife. And, and I got a huge amount of stick in some of the papers for, you know, disappearing off like that. And I thought, oh, you know, if that's the sort of stick you're going to get, is it, is it worth carrying on? And, and I sort of was asking myself, you know, am I really still enjoying this? Um, and we had a tour to Australia at the end, which was not a tour from hell, but I, I don't think anyone at the SIU had looked at a map when they agreed the itinerary um, because we, we started off in Darwin in the Northern Territories, uh, then played a midweek game in Brisbane uh, in Queensland, then traveled to Tasmania uh, in Hobart for the next Saturday or midweek game or whenever it was. So we'd gone from 35 degrees and 95% humidity to you know minus two and freezing in the space of six days and, and people wondered why we were all getting unwell and getting colds and stuff like that and not fe not feeling at our best you know and of course you've then got the, the incredible distance so uh, and as I say I, I thought about that and, and thought you know do I really want to carry on um, and so I decided I, I wasn't enjoying it as much as um, I, I wanted to uh, and, you know, I was thinking, you know, trying to build a career at that point with United Distillers um, and had two young children and thought, well, actually trying to balance everything is just getting too much. So I decided to, to call it quits. What age were you? Uh, what age were you then? I was 30. Yeah, I was 30. And I guess there was, you know, there was Alliance Tour coming up to New Zealand the following year which I suppose as, as captain of one of the home nations side as a, as a possibility that you might get the shout to captain that. Um, but I decided that if I, if I stayed on just for the Lions tour to try and be part of that, I'd be doing it for all the wrong reasons. I'd be doing it for reasons of ego and profile and stuff like that. And that's, that's really not who I am or, or why I played the game. Uh, and so I was, I was content just to, call it quits and, and start focusing on other things. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't regret it at all. I, I absolutely love my time in the game, but that was, you know, as I said, it was, it's not the, the kind of registration, it's the mileage yeah. uh, that counts. And, you know, I've done seven years of international rugby and, and that felt like quite a lot. And there were other priorities to focus on.
you mentioned a couple of priorities there and that was you know two young children and that's something i want to touch on now um you've obviously got four children who have performed at a very high level and you know i've, I've been lucky enough to, to play with some of them and i've met all of them in terms of is it in the genes? Was it meant to be? Is it the way that you, you looked after them? Did you did you, did you make them, you know, lead a high performance life? Or was that just always going to happen because their dad played at that level? Um, well, I don't think they had, they necessarily had any appreciation of what, what I achieved because obviously they were young and born after it, it happened. And even the ones that were born when I was still playing, you know, they were too, too young to understand it. Um, so, so I don't think they necessarily had a sense of you know, that or, or in terms of following in, in dad's footsteps or anything. Um, you know, sport's always been a really important part of our life. And, and, you know, we think because of what it gives you as a human being, as a teammate, as a leader, you know, the kind of the values that you get from any sport <clears throat> around sort of discipline, training, all of these sorts of good things are good things to have. Um, and it's, you know, I've always been a you know, real believer in getting sort of balance in life and, and just trying things out. So we really encouraged our kids to try everything. Mm -hmm. um, you know, James' brother was a you know, good county cricketer. He played, he was on the books at Gloucester for a while. Um, and I suppose you know, if you think about genes and, you know, the, the kids are more likely to get genes, uh, their cricketing genes from James' side of the family than my side of the family. Having said that, I did get a trial as under 19 for Scotland, but uh, was never going to, never going to progress. I might know my limitations. Um, but, I, you know, I love, I love sport. I love cricket. I love all, all sports, really. Yeah. Um, and I guess what we did was just encourage them to, to right. try everything. So, you know, Chris won a prize for ballet when he was at uh, his primary <laughs> school. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, he, he was a you know, terrific gymnast um, you know, in his sort of early days. All the kids had to go at judo. They you know, enjoyed athletics. You know, they were lucky, lucky enough to go to schools where the, the kind of breadth of the sporting curriculum was enable them to, to mm -hmm. have a go at pretty much most things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that was all we wanted them to do. And, and, and to be perfectly honest, it, it didn't bother me that whether they were good, bad, indifferent, or whether they loved it or hated it or whatever. Um, just, you know, we encouraged them to try it out. And if they did find something which they were passionate about, then they, you know, absolutely we'd support them as much as we possibly could to do whatever they wanted to do in that particular area. So the, the boys, when we were chatting to them, mm. echoed, you know, completely echo what you say there. Because I was curious to know, you know, your dad's a, was a, a rugby legend, you know, did he want you to follow in those footsteps? Um, and the boy said, not at all. He was just happy for us to, to you know, when cricket cricket direction started taking taking shape, dad was dad was happy. Now, this has led to having, when Glenn has mentioned it already, pretty talented kids. Two of the boys have gone on current internationalists for Scotland, as well as have had stints down in county cricket as well. Um, your daughter is a fantastic netball player who has travelled the world playing the game as well. Um, and it all came nicely and formed at the lovely Sunny Grange a couple of years ago, um, where you were the guest of honour, rightfully so, which I thought was great. And, you know, inspiration for the boys that, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a man here that's, that's been there and done it and be, gotten over the line against the English. 
what what were you feeling on the morning of the game? You know, one of your boys was playing, um, the atmosphere, everything. Talk to me about the day mm. from a father's perspective. It's just an amazing day, you know. Um, <clears throat> I've done a piece with um, Sky, uh, with Chris and Tom the, the week previously, which they were going to use in the, in the sort of halftime break. Um, and they're saying, hey, and, and, you know, I, I was just, hey, I was, I was absolutely delighted that the sun was shining. You know, that was the main thing and the, and the game was going to take place. Uh, and I said in the Sky interview, you know, all, all I want the Chris to do and, and indeed the rest of the guys to, is, is to enjoy the occasion because you play sport for fun, you know, that, you play for enjoyment, I think, fundamentally. And of course it's important and winning is important and being, but all of those are sort of incidental, you know, sport is about recreation, it's about bringing guys together and, and you know, creating that sense of excitement. Uh, and, you know, when, when you play a big game like that in front of the grades, whatever it was, five or 6,000 people for, for Scottish cricketers or, or for me at Murrayfield, you know, I, I really want to enjoy the moment. Um, and so I, I really encourage them to, to revel in the moment and, and to, to, to just enjoy every second of it. And, um, you know, it's a bit like Tom, when he, when he made his List Bay debut against South Africa playing for North Hans, um, you know, what a great occasion. And we went up to, to see him. And, but same thing, just as I said, you know, good luck and just enjoy it, have fun. Uh, you know, play with a smile on your face because you know, whether you win or lose, it's... It's just a great occasion, and you know that's what your kind of memories are, are made of. And mm. I remember my very first cap like I shared with you know one of the most incredible you know scrum halves that Scotland's ever produced, Roy Laidlaw, who had been there, done it, you know, got a grand slam under his belt, got lions to it under his belt, and, and it was my first cap. And, and Roy, we, we shared the room together, and we sort of met on the Thursday. So he, he, he was trying to wind me up. He said, "Oh, he said." Uh, 48 hours to go till kickoff. You're, you're nervous here. I said, no, I'm, I'm not. And, and I got this sort of countdown. I told you for what I was to go. You, you know, and the fact that I was so laid back about the whole thing and just prepared to enjoy the moment and try and remember everything about the experience from you know the moment you get on the bus, you get the police escort to the ground, you get in, you get your jersey, all of those. I just wanted to treasure those moments because you never know if you're going to get another opportunity like that. Um, and I think it, it wound up Roy immensely because he got far more nervous than I was. And, but it was the same for the kids. You know, I just wanted them, to, for Chris in that particular instance, to enjoy the occasion. And, and then it was just absolutely fantastic. And, and you know, I, I always say that I, I never really appreciated how my mum and dad must have felt. Mm -hmm watching me play play rugby um, and you know win you know big matches for Scotland. But that day and and, and indeed anytime I've I've watched my kids play whether they won or lost, um, I get a real sense of how they must have felt because you just want to burst with pride. It's just fantastic. You're so proud and happy for them. And and I always say, you know, if, if you offered me the choice to win a Grand Slam or to watch my kids play sport for, for Scotland. But I'd take my kids every single time. I'd give up all of my, you know, Lions tours, Grand Slams, everything to, to watch the boys play or watch Gemma play. And that rings, that's something that rings true for me there is, and, and, and Chris mentioned it as well, is 
you've given all your kids the platform to enjoy it and, and, and really be a part of multiple sports. And I think for for other parents watching this as well, it's 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 quite a big thing, isn't it? Because I think you you hear about stories about people pushing their children and you know being down on a Sunday on the pitch at the football and shouting and swearing and the pressure. Because I remember you talking about your debut there. I remember my debut, all I could think of it was bloody hell, I need to try and perform here to to make someone happy or or keep someone happy or or impress them. So, you know, by the sounds of it, your kids has, has had the chance to, well, actually, I'm going to go enjoy this for myself, um, which is which is a big lesson, I think, for a lot of parents to take away as well. Yeah, I, I, I think it's important. As you've probably heard from Chris and Tom, you know, I, I, we, we love watching, uh, as a family, we love watching each other and, and you know, whether it's Gemma at uh, the Commonwealth Games or, or you know, the boys playing cricket, even if it's just a club match, you know, if we're around, we'll go and watch. Um, we'll go and watch Jamie play Fred uh, Rackies or whatever it is, yeah. because that's what we do. And I guess that is what we've always done as a family. If we're there and, and one of the kids is playing, we'll go and watch. Um, because I, I think it's really important to, to be there and to be supported. Um, and rugby is interesting because my wife isn't as au fait with the, the laws of the game as perhaps I am. Uh, and she's quite vociferous um, from time to time, or certainly w- was when she was watching the kids at school play sport. And, and she has had um, a game stopped because she was abusing the referee man so much. <laughs> um, not, not her proudest moment, but she was absolutely right, by the way, uh, because the referee was hopelessly incompetent to the point of being... Uh, you know, putting the kids at risk for, for serious harm, but there we go. The boy, you know, your your two sons, your daughter as well. Jamie is, Jamie's a good rugby player as well. Yeah, he he, he was, um, you know, I, I guess feeling a little bit left out um, as being the only sibling who, who hadn't had a Scotland cap, but uh, we're absolutely thrilled because um, this year, he, he or last year, whenever it was, um, he was selected for the Scottish club side to, to play against Ireland. So he, he finally got to wear the thistle. So all the kids have done it now. And, and you know, he's very funny about that because, oh, God, I was really feeling the pressure. You know, everyone else has got caps and I haven't. You know? So, and he's getting on a bit, you know, he's sort of 30 plus now. So, uh, so we were absolutely thrilled when he, uh, when he got, the, got the call up for that game. The kids are all blessed with the fact, obviously, that they've got a father who's played sport at the top level, do they tap into your psyche, your mindset? You know, we all face playing sport at the top level. Like you said, it's not all hunky-dory. There's moments where it's really, really tough. Do they, do they, do they speak to, to Dad about that kind of stuff? Especially, especially Tom now, obviously, you know, going through his, his action change, it'd be some dark times. David, how, 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 how has that been for him? Has he, has he tapped into you, like I just said? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's found it tough, you know. Um, and I think... <clears throat> when I listened to the, Chris and Tom on the, on, on the podcast, you know, they were both talking about the pressures that you get in, in uh, county cricket and, and, you know, the pressure that you, you know, towards the end of the season, you're playing for your contract, you're playing for the next, the next deal. Brutal. And, yeah, it, it is tough. And, you know, Tom, you know, we're really proud that he did five years down at North Hans um, and, you know, I think did uh, really well. We were obviously disappointed for him when he got released. Um, but I think, but that's absolutely fine. And there was, you know, that's, that's the, the, the choice. You know, again, it comes back to, you know, I think you have to be available to support. And, and we try and strike a balance between 
asking how you're doing and you know, questioning what, what are you doing? Have you done a bit? Have you spoken to Crowley in terms of your action or do you want to be? And, you know, on the one hand, you, you don't want to be too intrusive, but because you're a, a mom or a dad, you, you want to make sure that he's okay and kind of, um, you know, mentally he's, he's okay. And um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, he's had some, you know, ups and downs. There's no, no doubt about that. And I'm sure he, he would admit that himself. And I think the fact that he does admit that himself is you know, a, a real strength of his um, because he's, you know, he's good at asking for help when he needs it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, you know, that's quite a, a brave thing to and courageous thing to, to have to do. So, we, you know, we're, you know, always there to be supportive. You know, we've, we've recently moved into a, a new house, which, and there's a very large agricultural shed. So, so we've yeah. set up a, an area for him to to bowl in um, in the shed, and he's you know he's taking himself out, and you know I take my hat off him. You know he's filming himself, he's you know working on his action. He knows the things he's he's got to do, and I think it's you know the pandemic for him couldn't have come at a worse time because he's he's just not been able to do all the corrective work in a sort of concentrated period, do the test, and and get you know back to bowling, but. You know, he's a, he's a pretty resilient lad and uh, he's a pretty determined lad, you know. Um, I, I think when we were sort of growing up, or when they were growing up, um, you looked at his competitiveness and, um, you know, he took it pretty seriously. He is a very competitive uh, young man. Um, and <laughs> to the point of it being, you know, dialing up a little bit too much, we had one or two falling out, falling out about that, you know, when, when he was out and they playing cricket in the garden and the bats would go or whatever. Ah, hold on a minute, Tom. You've got to deal with failure as well as success. No, but it's um, it has a real strength of character. Something like having to remodel your bowling action <coughs> is, is, is not an easy thing to do. Mm. And, and and with the fact that you've been released, you know, that could... that could uh, <clears> some, A lot of people would walk away from the game or couldn't deal with it. The fact that they have to deal with this challenge that's been presented, and that's the cards he's been dealt. And I follow him on Instagram, and I see his videos, seen the shed, great, great facility that he's got there, and he's and he's working hard to sort it out. And it's a great, great role model for anybody out there that deals with adversity. That you know, you just have to that you stay strong and you can, you can come through it. But I think it certainly helps that he's got a, a very supportive unit around him, you as his father, I'm sure you would have seen moments in your career as well where you're thinking, oh, I'm not playing the best right now. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think um, for me, it comes down to his work ethic, and I think he's got a terrific work ethic uh, in that regard. So, he, you know, he's not work shy at all. You know, he works hard in his fitness. He works hard in his, um, uh, on, a, on kind of the, the technical aspect of things. And I think, you know, the discipline of the professional game you know, gives you that when you work in that environment, I think, and you perhaps move away from that. I was always a good trainer. I always enjoyed training. Um, I, I, you know, I liked going to the, to the weights room or doing extra hill runs or whatever it was um, because, you know, you kind of wonder whether others are doing it. And, and if you think that's going to give you a little bit of a competitive advantage, then, you know, psychologically, that's a, a, a big plus. And, and so, you know, I think for... Tom and the others to sort of be prepared to go out and, you know, go running when it's pissing with rain and blowing a gale. I think, you know, I take my hat off into him. It's one question, oh, yeah. Shaky, sorry, Dave, one question I'd like to ask, and it was, 
it's to relate now to your professional life and how you see that crossing over with sport as well. And one thing that has been ringing in my head is, you know, I'm going down the route, you know, that route of being in the professional working life now. And what would you say is that the three sort of key indicators for high performance and how do you see it now when you teach, um, you know, young directors and aspiring people? You, uh, from what you've learned as a sportsman, what would you say is the, the key to high performance within business and sport? Because I think there's going to be a lot of parents watching this and there'll be a lot of business people watching this as well. So, you know, that's what you do now. What, what would your advice on that, on that front be? Yeah, it's a, it's a hard question to ask because I think, you know, very often context is is everything. And, and you know, to, to sort of be as generic in general is, is, is you know, and meaningful. It's, it can be tough. Um, you know, I think you know the the aspects of leadership are really key, and I think what what sport does is it gives you a huge amount of discipline around that. And, and you know, if I think about my game rugby, you know, the, the sort of discipline around leadership, um, you know, bringing a team together, getting a, a sense of common purpose, common goal, uh, common vision, you know, and, and trying to get everyone to um get some momentum behind that is really important so so and, and at the heart of that you've got to build trust you know you've got to have a, a high degree of trust and, and you know I, I think I was and, and hopefully I'm quite a consensual leader I like collaboration I like people to come to a consensus uh, and everyone agree and but I'm not sure not afraid of disagreement you know I think it's important mm-hmm. to have disagreements and diversity of thought and if you're going to have that, you've got to have a high level of trust because you've got to recognize that, you know, when you're disagreeing with someone uh, vociferously, it's not a personal attack. It's because you all want to do the best thing, whether it's for the sporting team or for the business. You want both to perform at their best. Um, and so that, that, that is a really important thing. So, so I think you know, building trust in teams, organizations is really important. I think that clarity of purpose, that North Star, you know, why are you here? What, why are you here? To, everyone can develop a great strategy. You can think about the values, how you're going to do stuff. But, but you know, purpose-led businesses um, are, are really um, very much the ones which, which I like to, to work with and associate them the most with. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, when I think about my own business, you know, we, we talked a lot about what is our purpose and, you know, why do we do what we do? And, you know, when you can land on that, everything else um, falls in behind it, and the strategy and the and the kind of the execution becomes, you know, relatively easy. So, purpose one, trust would be another, mm-hmm. um, and I think I think the <clears throat> the other piece that is really important is is that bit around diversity. Mm-hmm. You know, actually recognizing, valuing, appreciating diversity, and most importantly, including that diversity. Diversity of thought, diversity of approach, diversity of um, you know, style, individual thinking style, whatever, um, and bring that all together to sort of build in behind that that purpose, that, that mission. Yeah, it's fascinating because teams, it, it's, it's trust, isn't it? it? It doesn't matter if it's a sports team or a working environment. And even looking back to Tom there, you know, he feels confident and open up and asking for help and support and I'm sure you've had disagreements along the way and, and that takes a lot of, I suppose that's the, the support mechanism around him and the environment that he's in and I think you can create that in business and in sporting environments. So no, that, that's quite fascinating. Just thanks for sharing that. 
David, it's been fascinating to chat to you. Learned a lot in the, in the space of this hour. You've um, really got me thinking about quite a few things and in the, in the, in the way you put things in perspective. You know, the experience you've had in life, now in business, being a father. Um, what's the final bit of advice you would give to parents out there with kids aspiring to play at elite level sport? Well, as I say, I, I think if you have a passion about your, your sport as a parent, don't make an assumption that it's going to be the same for your kids. Um, you know, I'd really encourage parents to allow um, their kids to experience as, much, as many different sports as they possibly can. Uh, and then if they land on something that, that they really enjoy, uh, be as supportive as you possibly can. And, and that can be as simple as turning up or ferrying them to, to training or you know, turning up to support them at a swimming gala or a you know, gymnastic thing or, or your ballet. ballet, exactly, uh, whatever it is, um, to, you know, providing them with sort of financial resource or financial support or whatever it is to you know, become the next freestyle skier for, you know, Team GB or whatever it is. So, so you know, because you only get one crack at it, you know, you only get one crack at it. And um, I guess I've, I've never worried too much about um, what kids will do professionally in, in, from a career-wise when they get to sort of 30 or 35, because I, I do trust that the values and behaviours and attributes that they will get through sport will help and support them find their way at some point in the future. Um, and you know, that, that's really important. So to give them that opportunity, because I say, you only get one crack at life, so you might as well make the most of it while you're there. Follow your passion. What a pleasure it's been. It's been lovely to chat to you. Appreciate you giving us your time. I know you're a busy man um, and, you know, wish you, wish you all the very best in, in the future. Thank you very much, guys. And Flan, it's good to see you. Well, see you again soon. See you soon. Cheers, David. Thank you. Take care.